there's an ongoing joke in my family that's set to a little tune, and it goes like this. If you want nice things, don't have children. (laughs) Now, I admit that is a a bit cruel, and I am the one who came up with it, Uh, but there... I will say this, there is some truth to that. Uh, it, it's just that children are better than nice things. And Jeremiah's version, to his credit, is also true. If you want nice things, don't have parents. So our, our kids follow in our footsteps. But we have a bunch of old children's books from when I was a kid, and they were nice. Uh, and there's a special one, and it's still mine. Actually, it's, it is probably either Val's or Chris's because of the Summit Valley School uh, stamp on the inside of it. But it's Lydia and Don Freeman's Pet of the Met. Okay? It has sentimental value to me. Uh, and, and I keep it... This is weird that I'm confessing this to you all. I keep it in a special place, uh, this book. It's It's mine. And I don't want it to be torn. I don't want it to be crinkled or ruffled or colored on with crayon. I like it, and I want to preserve it. Now, we try to preserve things that are valuable to us. Sometimes we go to great lengths to do this. The Declaration of Independence, Constitution, and Bill of Rights are kept in 70-degree, humidity-controlled, hermetically sealed, helium-filled, and ultraviolet light-protective cases. Inside of a heavy steel and concrete vault, which is fireproof, waterproof, and I think atomic bomb proof. Uh, Every morning, the cases are raised uh, from the vault by a scissors action jack for display. Two armed guards protect the documents. They're valuable to the United States, and so they are preserved. The gospel or good news of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is unsurpassed in value, and it must be preserved as it is. As an apostle, Paul went to great lengths at great personal cost to preserve and publicize the original gospel. By grace and the Spirit's power, Paul traveled, preached, debated, contended, reasoned, wrote, suffered, sacrifices, and even died to preserve and publicize God's gospel as it was given to him. Why do it? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ inscribed in sacred scripture is God's gospel and really good news for us. My point this morning is simple. I try to make simple points that are memorable. So here it is. If we truly love God and people, we must preserve and publicize the uncorrupted truth of the gospel. In the name of love, to borrow from you too, we must be willing to suffer and sacrifice in order to preserve and publicize the whole counsel of God. In Galatians 2, 1 through 10, Paul continued his defense of his own apostolic authority in order to preserve and publicize the original gospel. It wasn't Paul going off about how independent he was. It was Paul contending for the gospel. And verse 5 is, I think, the key phrase describing Paul's objective. To them... That was the Judaizers or the false brothers. We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, for the Galatians, for the Gentiles. 
Paul would not back down. He wasn't contending to be unnecessarily argumentative. On the contrary, he contended in order that the integrity of the gospel might be preserved and publicized for the good of the Gentiles. If the Galatians had a different gospel, an altered gospel, an expanded gospel, they would be led away from God. So yes, Paul confronted the false teachers and their false doctrine, their false gospel, because they were dangerous to the people that Paul loved. He really loved. If we truly love God and people, we must, we must preserve and publicize the uncorrupted truth of the gospel. All my points are aimed there. Number one, Though Paul didn't receive the gospel from any man, he did receive affirmation and accountability from the other apostles. In Galatians 1, 11 through 24, Paul was quite clear that he had not received the gospel from any man, but had received it uniquely through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He continued his argument, Galatians 2, verses 1 and 2. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. And set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running, excuse me, or had not run in vain. Now, there's some debate on this, but like the three years, I think the 14 years are counted from Paul's conversion. So his second visit to Jerusalem was 11 years after his first visit. Acts 11 mentions Paul's second visit. He went with Barnabas, a Jew, and he went with Titus, a Gentile. And having a Gentile with him on that visit was significant. And we'll get to that in a little moment. Did the apostles bring Paul back by their authority somehow? No, Paul went back to Jerusalem because of a revelation from God, which further proves that God had given the gospel to Paul and divinely set him apart as an apostle. After conversion, Paul began to preach the gospel, and only after 14 years of preaching did Paul set his gospel before the influential apostles in Jerusalem. What happened when he did? The apostles affirmed his gospel and his call to ministry. Jump down to verses 6 through 9. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles." And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, there is a lot in those verses, but pay particular attention to several points. Number one, in verse six, as influential as the apostles were, which was a divinely granted influence, they added nothing to Paul. Paul didn't receive the gospel or authority or call to ministry from the apostles. Number two, in verses seven through eight, the apostles, we're talking guys like James, Peter, and John, 
who were with Jesus during his earthly ministry saw directly that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel as much as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel. It was clear to the apostles, same God, same Christ, same gospel, same call to ministry, same apostolic authority, same preaching, different audience. Number three, Jesus chose 12 disciples, his choice. Among the 12, through the gospels, we see a prominent three. Who were they? Peter, James, and John. Who does Paul mention in verse 9? Peter, James, and John. Paul said they seem to be pillars. A pillar is a strong support that upholds a structure. James, Peter, Cephas, Peter, and John were strong men of God, and I think uniquely gifted among the apostles, not possessing any more authority per se, but probably the most dominant leaders. They perceived God's grace in Paul, and they gave him the right of fellowship. In other words, they accepted Paul. His gospel was of God. His apostolic authority was of God. His ministry was of God. His church planting among the Gentiles was of God. And so they affirmed his apostleship and accepted him as a partner in gospel ministry and church planting. They they gave Paul accountability and affirmed his credibility. Back to verse 2. Paul said, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul wasn't doubting his gospel. He wasn't even doubting his call to ministry. But his ministry would have been greatly hindered had the Jerusalem apostles not affirmed him. It would have greatly undermined the clarity of the gospel had the Jerusalem apostles opposed Paul. Paul, as a lone wolf, wouldn't make biblical sense. The the right hand of fellowship or partnership from the apostles adds unity and clarity and power to the historical and biblical argument for the gospel. God sovereignly authenticates his message by giving unity to the apostles, his messengers. The apostles' affirmation and their accountability only strengthened Paul's argument against the false brothers. The, The apostles' weren't the source of Paul's gospel or ministry, but they were a valuable confirmation of the source of his gospel and ministry. And all of this serves to preserve and publicize the uncorrupted truth of the gospel that Paul and the other apostles agreed upon. The apostolic witness of holy scripture is what God wants us to preserve and publicize. Number two, none of the apostles demanded circumcision for salvation. The idea that someone is saved by Jesus plus their obedience to the Mosaic law is hostile to the gospel. Jesus plus works equals justification is not the gospel. Along with the prophets, the apostles, they are the foundation of the church. And none of them, none of them required circumcision for salvation. Circumcision to be saved. Look at verse 3. But even Titus who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. That's huge. Huge. Now, why is that important? Because if circumcision or keeping the Mosaic law is essential to salvation and therefore necessary for all believers, the apostles would have absolutely forced Titus to be circumcised. However, the apostles 
handled Titus differently. He wasn't forced. And so that invalidated the false teacher's doctrine that they were giving the Galatians. Now, why is it such a big deal that the apostles didn't require circumcision for Titus? Now, think about this carefully. I'm going to pull from the last sermon series on covenant theology. What did circumcision represent historically? It was a sign and seal of God's covenant gospel promises, including justification by faith alone and a sign and seal of entrance into the visible church or the covenant people of God. When Gentiles wanted to join the visible covenant people of God in the Old Testament, the men needed to be circumcised. Circumcision was a huge deal in the Old Testament church. For almost 2,000 years, circumcision was an indispensable sign and seal of God's covenant of grace and covenant membership. Remember, no circumcision meant being cut off from the covenant people of God. Remember Genesis 17, verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant circumcision was a huge deal. So you can understand then why the Judaizers were pushing circumcision. They sounded very reasonable inside the church. The problem is that circumcision was never the means of justification before God. It only ever signified and sealed justification before God when faith was present. And then only in the old covenant period of church history. Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law, making circumcision obsolete and instilling baptism as the new sign and seal of God's covenant of grace and visible covenant membership. The apostles' response to Titus is very telling. Titus didn't need to be circumcised to show that he was in the covenant of grace and part of God's visible covenant people. Listen carefully now. If a sign and seal is the means of justification, it ceases to be a sign and seal and becomes the means. But Jesus is the means of justification received by grace through faith. Circumcision cannot be the means. Baptism cannot be the means. They are meant as a sign and a seal. Circumcision for a time replaced by baptism for the new covenant. If the false teachers in Galatia were right, if Paul had the wrong gospel and circumcision was a means of justification, then why didn't the apostles demand that Titus be circumcised? Paul's logic, it it crushed the gospel of those false teachers. And at the same time, it was an incredible blessing to the Gentiles. Incredible blessing. Paul was on the same page as the Jerusalem apostles. It was the Judaizers in Galatia who were flat out dead wrong on the gospel. Every single one of the apostles affirmed justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, and none added circumcision or works of the law to the gospel. Luther said beautifully, 
For a true and steadfast faith must lay hold upon nothing but Christ alone. And in the terrors of conscience, it hath nothing else to lean upon but this diamond, Christ Jesus. This diamond, Christ Jesus. Oh, the value and beauty of our diamond, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus alone saves and justifies. He doesn't need our help. We must preserve and publicize the beauty, radiance, supremacy, and sufficiency of the diamond Christ Jesus for the glory of God and for the freedom of all believers. John Stott once said this, the Christian has been set free from the law in the sense that his acceptance before God depends entirely upon God's grace in the death of Jesus Christ received by faith. To introduce the works of the law and make our acceptance depend on our obedience to rules and regulations was to bring a free man into bondage again. Did you get that? To make works of the law A contributing means of justification is to bring a free man into bondage again. This brings me to number three. They might be really likable, but pseudo-Christian preachers ultimately preach a false gospel to enslave people. Heretics are popular and they're invited to dinner parties. Likeability often blurs the lines of credibility. Christian preachers who preach a pseudo-gospel are pseudo-Christians. Even if they sound a lot like Christians, this is why spirit-led discernment is crucial in the church. As likable as they may be, false brothers work to destroy Christian freedom and lead people into slavery Their pseudo-gospel words are shackles. Verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Saints, freedom in Christ is so precious. And enjoyable. Freedom is an amazing blessing from God. The Galatians were free in Christ to love and obey God. All believers are free in Christ to love and obey God. No longer are believers enslaved to the elementary principles of the world or to the law of sin and death. Christ redeemed us to be free, to live free. The curse of the law is gone. We are legally free in Christ to enjoy our freedom by obeying God. Okay then. We must therefore preserve and publicize the truth of the gospel which leads to freedom. Because if we add to or subtract from the gospel, freedom is destroyed and slavery is back. Who wants that? Who among us who knows Christ wants to slip back into slavery to the law of sin and death? Paul used the term pseudodelphos or false brothers. Now pay attention to this compound word, pseudes, false, adelphos, brothers, 
A false brother is someone in the church that seems to be a brother or a sister in Christ, but the gospel that they believe and promote is not the true gospel. The the false teachers in Galatia said they were believers. They sounded a lot like believers, but their doctrine exposed them as fakes, counterfeits. They didn't have it. Jesus described it like this in Matthew 17, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How do a sheep and a wolf get along? Ravenous wolves infiltrated the ranks in Galatia. They joined the church under false pretense. They slipped in with the intent to trap and to deceive and to enslave. They looked like sheep, but they were actually just really hungry wolves. They were slave drivers, not freedom fighters. We need a whole lot more freedom fighters in the church of America. Different gospels enslave people. Here's how. This gets a little tricky, so pay attention. I'll try to take it slow. To say that salvation comes from God's grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ plus human works of the law is to deny the sufficiency of Christ's merits, which alone bring freedom. When denying Christ's merits as the only source of righteousness and salvation, law-keeping becomes a contributing means of salvation and being accepted by God, which is not only antithetical to the gospel, but also an impossible burden to carry. So believing the false gospel of grace plus works is to be enslaved to the law. And more precisely, enslaved to sin and death, the penalty or curse of the law. Get this now. The more someone counts on their own law-keeping or righteousness as the means by which they are accepted by God, the more enslaved they are. And this is so relevant for the church today because many church uh, churchgoers have a false gospel and they think they're Christians. They should not assume that their profession of faith is legitimate when the gospel they believe and profess is illegitimate. The most loving thing that we can do as a church is to preserve and publicize the uncorrupted truth of the gospel with clarity and with precision so that people can truly see and know God. Now, did you grow up with saying uncle when somebody got you in a wrestling match? All right. Maybe the kid twisted your arm behind their back and then made you say uncle. How, how many of you grew up with that? Just a, just a few. All right. Those of you who wrestled. The rest of you were pacifists and peacekeepers. All right. So saying uncle, saying uncle in a wrestling match, that's okay, man. We still love you if you lost. That's okay. But when it comes to the gospel, when your arm is twisted behind your back and the pressure is applied, let them break your arm. Never say, uncle, when contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, saying, uncle, is turning from God. We must love more than saying, uncle. Number four, 
for the preservation of the true gospel and the eternal joy of the nations, submission must never, ever, 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 ever be given to false teachers. Paul said in verse 5, to them, the false brothers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul was feeling pressure. People were slandering him. If he said uncle, imagine the horrific effects among the Gentiles. The Galatians in the world, people would have continued to desert God and Paul wouldn't have anything to do with that thought. He would fight, he would contend, he would stand on the gospel. Folks, look around. Many people in many churches are deserting God. Churches yield in submission to the loud voices of tolerance, compromise, and inclusion, and the gospel gets drowned out by the pure volume of a false gospel, and the spirit departs and churches die. The doors might stay open, but they're dead churches. The gospel is not there. Can you hear the intensity of Paul's love in verse 5? You see, yielding under pressure is easy. We've all done it. We know it's easy. Why didn't Paul do it? So that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for the Galatians. That's true love. Can the church in America just recognize that's how we love people? By contending for the gospel. By preserving it, by protecting it, by making sure we have the original gospel. Paul knew the infinite value of the original gospel and so he fought and he suffered to preserve it, get this, for others to enjoy. There are many examples of yielding and submission today. But one of the most striking examples is the homosexual movement's invasion of the church. Pseudo-Christians are enslaving people by rewriting God's clear sexual ethic. They limit Christ's atoning and liberating work on the cross and enslave people by removing the label of sin from certain sexual sins. And it's devastating people. And they don't care because they just want to applaud. They don't even love. It's hatred. The ones who stand on the gospel are not the ones hating. They're the ones loving. I'm not talking about the jerks who wave mean signs. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking to the ones who wrap an arm around and love people and tell them the truth about hell and the glories of Christ. It's devastating people. Wake up, Church of America. They don't realize, these churches who compromise, that they lose the gospel in their compromise on God's sexual ethic. If we love the LGBTQIA community at all, we must, with utmost gentleness and tenderness and patience and kindness and generosity and compassion, give them the uncorrupted truth of the gospel. Jesus graciously rescues people from all sexual sins. Praise God. Are you not sexually broken? 
I need His redeeming grace. And so does this community that we should love. Who will love the LGBTQIA community enough to risk rejection and cultural shame by putting an arm around them and explaining how Jesus liberates us from even unlawful sexual desires? Not just actions, folks. The desires are off. Reducing the gospel is not loving. It's helping people walk away from God into greater sin and misery. I don't think the greatest pain for the LGBTQIA community is coming from outside persecution, as horrible as that is. That is not the root of the pain. They are applauded by millions of people in America, seen as heroes. I think their greatest pain is coming from inside them. And we must give them the gospel which liberates. Do we not see the beauty of the gospel? Let us not applaud sin and compromise. Let us applaud Christ and His redeeming grace through the cross which rescues the vilest sinners like you and like me from sin and death and makes them alive and truly free. Let's applaud the gospel. I think the greatest threat to the church today is not an outright denial of the gospel outside, but a dilution of the gospel inside. John Calvin said, For the false apostles did not altogether set aside the gospel but mixed up with it their own notions so as to give it a false and disguised aspect which it always has when we make the smallest departure from the simplicity that is in Christ. Saints, a diluted gospel is no gospel. Our love must withstand cultural pressure. We must lovingly preserve and publicize the uncorrupted truth of the gospel because we love God and because we love people. And we hate slavery. So we're going to be freedom fighters the whole way. I love how Dr. Riken put it. He said this, but the apostles knew that it is impossible to refinish the finished work of Christ. The gospel says that through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has done everything that needs to be done for our salvation. If we were to try to add anything to that free and gracious gospel, it would be like taking an Olympic gold medal and having it bronzed. The good news of the cross and the empty tomb cannot be improved. It can only be destroyed. Well said, Riken. We must hold our ground because we love. Because we love. Number five, when grace is received, grace is perceived. We want the original gospel because that's where God's power is. When God gives his grace through the preaching of the gospel and makes a dead sinner alive in Christ and motivates them to holiness, God's grace is made visible in that redeemed person's life. And God is glorified in them. When grace is received, grace is perceived. In verse 9, James, Peter, and John perceived God's saving and transforming grace in Paul. God's, uh, Paul's gospel 
Paul's ministry, Paul's life exhibited that God gave supernatural grace to Paul. Paul's radical transformation was an exhibition of grace, which, which then led the Jerusalem apostles to extend the right hand of fellowship with him, which all verified the gospel. There is a crisis in evangelical Christianity, friends. People claim to have received grace, but then you cannot perceive grace in their life. Of course, not everyone is the Apostle Paul, which has that kind of testimony. That's amazing. Not everybody is the Apostle Paul. Of course, sanctification and being more like Jesus is not an immediate process. It's a process that God does in our life. But you have to remember that the fruit is of the Spirit. The Spirit grows it in true believers. He absolutely does. From persecutor of the church to church planter, that's an exhibition of grace. That you can see. You see grace alive. Number six, compassion and mercy ministry must accompany the gospel. The apostles in Jerusalem were not Paul's source of authority or gospel ministry, but they did ask him to remember the poor. Would you remember the poor? Verse 10, only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I think the apostles were asking their fellow apostle as he was leaving Jerusalem to remember the poor specifically in Jerusalem, to send aid back. Paul mentioned the poor among the saints at Jerusalem in Romans 15, but in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3, I think Paul is most clear. He said this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, he said, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Now, this is what I read about, about the poor in Jerusalem. From its earliest days, the Jerusalem church faced a condition of grinding poverty. As can be seen from the dispute over widows receiving sufficient food and the practice of sharing all things in common to care for the needy, a land of soil deprivation and poor irrigation, Judea was also hard hit in this period of history by famine, war, and overpopulation. These people were poor, really, really poor. And they're saying, remember the poor, Paul. Remember the poor as you go. Send back. The apostles were eager, Paul was eager to have the holistic, that's a very important word, the holistic needs of the poor met, spiritual and physical. The apostles weren't the source of Paul's ministry, but they shared an earnest love for the poor. If we are to preserve and publicize the uncorrupted truth of the gospel, we must, that's not too strong, we must also be about meeting the needs of the poor. Compassion and mercy ministry are alive in a church that loves the gospel. One a study Bible said, Paul's concern for the poor is evidenced here, is in accord with the broader principle demonstrated throughout Scripture that genuine preaching of the gospel in every age must be accompanied by the meeting of physical needs as well. Compassion and mercy ministry flow out of and very naturally flow out of 
gospel preaching and gospel transformation. The gospel takes the lead. Let's not be confused on that. The gospel takes the lead, but it is not alone. It is accompanied by compassion and mercy ministry. The people who take the gospel most seriously are also the people who are most tuned in to the holistic needs of the poor. What does a newly dug well and year's supply of rice ultimately do for someone who doesn't know the gospel or who has a corrupted form of it? What what does liberation from the sex slave trade ultimately do for a person who remains in spiritual slavery? Compassion and mercy ministry without the gospel is unsatisfactory. The gospel, unaccompanied by compassion and mercy ministry, is unsatisfactory. We need more churches who are clear and accurate and precise on the gospel and who are combating poverty, which includes both empty stomachs and empty hearts. Churches like Jerusalem Church, churches that love the gospel, must outdo liberal churches in our filling empty stomachs and empty hearts. We must not only out-preach liberal churches, we must out-give liberal churches. But by the Spirit's power and the leading, we must outdo liberal churches to show true and supernatural compassion and kindness that naturally overflow from the gospel at work in us. Now, the Spirit will lead us in this. I'm not saying we're doing this excellently as a church. I think we're making strides and making headways and doing some amazing ministry. We can do more. We can do this better. The Spirit has to lead us, and that's why we need the gospel intact. If, if Jerusalem Church is going to con- uh, compromise on the gospel, we're in trouble. We will die in time. If we truly love God and people, we must preserve and publicize the uncorrupted truth of the gospel. Now, here are a few ways that you can help preserve and publicize the gospel because you might be sitting there saying, I don't know what to do. Here's some easy, practical, simple things that will go a long way. Number one, know and believe the original gospel. Know and believe the original gospel. You have to know the real thing so that you can discern the counterfeits. Know and believe the gospel. Know and believe scripture. And I would add, as a pastoral insight for you, to know historic Christian confessions like the Heidelberg Catechism so you know how to understand and interpret scripture. Number two, treasure gospel preaching. Desire to hear God's word Preach clearly and precisely. Desire and prioritize Lord's Day worship. And realize corporate worship is a gift to you to strengthen your knowledge of and confidence in the gospel. What's happening here is a gift to you. Jesus is speaking through his word to you, to grow you. He's loving you right now. Receive it from him. Treasure gospel preaching. Number three, hold your pastor and teachers accountable. This is a huge point. Test everything taught at Jerusalem Church. Test, discern, weigh everything against Scripture. Churches don't just one day abandon the gospel. The preaching and teaching, they gradually drift off course and the people in the pew go right along with it. May it never be. Here, if I drift, you have the responsibility to confront me. And if I continue to drift, you must fire me. 
Get another guy in here who's going to do it better. I need your accountability. Your teachers need your accountability. And teachers, don't teach if you don't like accountability. That, that should be one sign that, you know what, I'm actually not a teacher if I don't want accountability. You should expect people to say, you know, I had a question about how you phrased that. I want to make sure that I have it right. We got to be precise about the gospel. Number four, beware of so-called Christian TV, music, and publishing. Do you realize different gospels sell? Don't know if you know that. They sell a lot. Talk to your elders about what you're watching, listening to, and reading. Why? So we can police your life or so that we can love you and shepherd you. Be very careful what you set before your eyes. There is amazing Christian content out there. It will edify you and build you up. You can't read all of the books that are awesome. But there are so many terrible things out there that we want to put you on the things that will benefit you the most, the quickest. And even short things, if you're like, I can hardly read, we got something for you to encourage your heart. Number five, live a godly life while remembering the holistic needs of others. Live a godly life while remembering the holistic needs of others. Adorn your gospel testimony with holiness. Serve others by the Spirit's power in the name of Jesus for the fame of Jesus. Um, Be eager to give to the poor and to the oppressed and to the afflicted. Help make Jerusalem Church a gospel-centered center for compassion and mercy ministry. So those are just a few ways. Those are all good ones, not the only ones. If we truly love God and people, we must, we must preserve and publicize the uncorrupted truth of the gospel, and we must do it while loving and serving people. Even our worst enemies. Even our worst enemies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to speak to us. Paul is really tearing into the Galatians, and he's doing so because his love is so deep and profound and flows out of the gospel. And so I pray that you would protect Jerusalem Church from any liberal drifts away from you, God, and from your precious gospel and your precious son. I pray that your Holy Spirit will do a movement in Jerusalem Church to take us deeper into the gospel, that we will not only have something to defend. This is not a defense point. It's a person that we want to love and enjoy. And so, God, help us to fix our eyes on Christ and to realize that compromising the the gospel is to offend him. And so help us to love him so much that we embrace everything that he has given us in his word, the Holy Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. I pray that we embrace it all by faith and know that it is coming to us from you, God, as a precious gift. God, protect the gospel at Jerusalem Church so that we can preserve the gospel for the nations, to give them a true, powerful, liberating, amazing, and enjoyable gospel in Jesus Christ. Help us to do this for your glory. Protect us, God, against evil and against harm. Protect us from false teachers and wolves who will creep in here and distract us. God, we need your help on this. 
Help us to take a stand in our community for the gospel, to take a stand for understanding right doctrine. It is important. And yes, doctrinal deviance, that hurts uh, people, God, and it offends you. So help us to, with grace, love, patience, compassion, generosity, joy, to contend for the gospel to keep it in its original form, to publicize it in its original form for the joy of other people and ultimately for your glory. It is in Christ's name that we pray, amen.